Just take a moment. Breathe in through your nose, a deep calming breath. And then out through your mouth, long and slow. Keep going deep and slow. You're here listening because you care. You're here because you want to know more. You're here because you are strong enough. You're listening to the Strong Enough podcast from Eating Disorders Families Australia. Self-care is vital. Use this short meditation at the start of each podcast to take a moment for yourself. Keep those calming breaths going as you listen to this episode, which is sponsored through the generosity of people facing similar challenges. And I was struck, I guess, just by how much, you know, the eating disorder can take over someone's world. At the same time, how rewarding it was to see those people achieve some um, some recovery and some freedom from their eating disorder. And so that sort of really brought that passion, I guess, to working with uh, people experiencing those eating disorders. Welcome to the Strong Enough podcast. I'm your host, Joe Stone, and this episode we're asking EDFA psychologist Chris Fowler the questions you want asked. Is there language that you should avoid when you're talking to someone? Or is there language that might be better to use, perhaps? Yeah, great question. Um, so some tips that I would suggest for people is to use sort of I statements as opposed to you. So, you know, for example, you know, I'm noticing things are hard and, and I'm concerned about you. Chris is the program director of EDFA's new Fill the Gap program, a free online one-on-one counselling support service for carers of those with eating disorders. The sessions are delivered like telehealth or can be a video conference too, which means you can access support from anywhere in the country without leaving home or leaving your loved one's side. Fill the Gap sessions can be booked online through EDFA's website, but it is important to note that Fill the Gap is not a crisis service. So if you or someone you know is needing immediate support, please call emergency services or Lifeline. So for today's podcast, we put social media posts in our support groups, giving you, our members, the opportunity to ask Councillor Chris Fowler anything you want. So Chris, are you ready to help us through this list of questions? Sounds great, Joe. Firstly, people were a bit curious about you and wanted to know things like, you know, what you do in your role and how you became interested in helping people and their families with eating disorders in particular. So can you tell us how you came to be in this job? Yeah, certainly. So I'm a Sydney-based psychologist. I've I've worked with eating disorders for 12 years now. Um, I guess I first started in an inpatient, outpatient program, uh, hospital specific to eating disorders. Uh, And I was struck, I guess, just uh, by how much, you know, the eating disorder can take over someone's world. Uh, At the same time, how rewarding it was to see those people achieve some um, achieve some recovery and some freedom from um, their eating disorder. Um, And so that sort of really brought that passion, I guess, to working with uh, people experiencing those eating disorders. 
Uh, after the hospital, prog hospital program, I then moved into um, working for Butterfly, the national helpline for eating disorders. And there I worked with more carers um, on the helpline as well uh, and, and got to appreciate just how much support they need through that journey as well. So I'm really excited now to be part of EDFA and, and providing this program. It really centres on the carer and providing them with support uh, what's, during what is a difficult time you know, in their lives. Oh, we're so excited too, Chris, especially to have your incredible expertise now at EDFA um, to really help us help carers. And one of those really common questions that we often hear is, why is addressing the needs and supporting the carer important? And shouldn't the focus be on the person with an eating disorder? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, great question. Um you know, often when someone's in their recovery from an eating disorder, they have their own treatment team and there is a focus on them and they have a psychologist, a dietitian, uh, and a GP. And I've heard from carers, um, you know, previously, you know, where's our sort of support team? Where's our treatment team? You know, it's great and they're appreciative that their loved ones got a, a support network and a treatment team there. But they're also, um, you know, as a carer, they're probably with the person a lot more um, than the treatment team is. Um, and they can often feel at a loss of how to help or, um, you know, not sure what to do. Um, so I think by providing some in information um, and education um, about how they might be able to help and support can really empower care empower carers to help them feel that they can play a part. Um, and I think it's also important to support carers and their well-being. Um, like as I said, it's a very difficult and, and challenging time uh, and can impact carers and families in a lot of different ways. So in pro providing support to carers um, is incredible readily important for them to look after themselves so they can look after their loved one. There's that whole analogy, isn't there, of the putting the mask, the oxygen yeah, mask on yourself right. before you can put it on to Definitely. others. Yeah. It really fits. It does really fit um, in this case as well. So a question we have here is, I'm scared of saying the wrong thing to my child. Will I make it worse if I don't talk about it? Yeah, listen, it can be really tricky as a carer to know how to help or approach a loved one, particularly if their uh, loved one, I guess, isn't wanting to, to change or they're not wanting help and they're quite clear about that at times. Um, and, and as you say, I've often heard carers say, I don't want to say anything if, for fear of making it worse. And if I don't know what to say, it's probably best not to say anything. Um, you know, I'm not going to say it's necessarily necessarily going to make things worse, um, but I guess there's a flip side to not talking about it um, that there can be a risk, you know, um, that by not talking about it, the person with the eating disorder I may misinterpret that as being, you know, well, maybe this isn't something that's so bad if mum or dad aren't talking to me about it or raising it. Um, or perhaps mum or dad don't really know what's going on and maybe not interested or don't care so much, you know, in some ways around what's happening for me. And with an illness that can be so tied up into self-worth, um, you know, there can be that idea is, am I even worth seeking help for or getting help around this as well? So, uh, you know, certainly it's not easy to approach and talk, to about, talk about it with someone. Um, and, you know, often you need to be prepared for that sort of denial or, um, you know, maybe some frustration, you know, when we have those initial conversations. But letting, letting someone know that you are there and um, way to support them can be incredibly helpful. Is there language that you should avoid when you're talking to someone with an eating disorder or is there language that might be better to use perhaps? Yeah, certainly. So some tips that I would um, suggest for people is to use sort of um, 
I statements as opposed to you. So, you know, for example, you know, I am noticing things are hard and, and I'm concerned about you as opposed to you need to start getting help or you need to make some changes. Um, often that sort of I statement or I language can be um, helpful to perhaps uh, open up a conversation. And, you know, I think for all of us, you know, if someone approached us with, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that, you know, we, uh, our first initial reaction is probably to be a bit defensive and, and refute that and find evidence why we shouldn't make changes. So, again, using our I language can be incredibly helpful, um, as well as finding a time, you know, a bit of a right time, right place um, type scenario too. You know, um, if you're planning to have a conversation, I'd often suggest to people to make sure that you've got appropriate time, that neither you or your loved one's going to have to go off to an appointment or go off to school or uh, you have to start work because there's nothing worse than sort of opening something up and there's progress mm. made and, and being able to talk uh, about that. And then it has to be cut short because something else has come up. So finding picking, a time. Picking that, the right moment. <laughs> that's right. Picking the right time where you can and, and not. Um, and trying to do that away from other stresses as well as best as possible. So, you know, when I say that, I mean, you know, it's probably all not going to be the best time if it's around food or a meal time um, because the, the person with the uh, eating disorder may already be uh, quite heightened with their distress or stress with what's going on. Some good tips there. So using that eye language and then picking the right moment. Those mm. are great. Thanks, Chris. So another care question, how can working on my needs help the dynamics in the family and ultimately aid recovery? Yeah, no, this is a good question. Um, and, and going back to the analogy you mentioned around the oxygen mask as well, I think comes up to, comes to mind um, very much so here too, needing to look after our own needs so that we can be effective people uh, to look after the needs of others or support others. Um, you know, another sort of phrase is the idea you can't pour from an empty cup. Um, so yeah, not to sound too cliched, but I think they're both really fitting um, to why, you know, addressing the needs of carers is so important um, so that they can sort of um, feel like they can be an effective part of the, the treatment team. Um, and research has looked at how getting their own support, you know, how to uh, be able to decrease the psychological stress, I guess, that might be associated with uh, caring for a loved one, um, and as well as providing education, upskilling people in how they might be helpful or what they can do that would be helpful, um, and to be mindful of, you know, what might maintain the eating, the eating disorder as well. You know, there might be behaviours or conversations that we have that may in, inadvertently, um, you know, uh, maintain some of those behaviours as well. So having that sort of... Um, you know, skill, um, you know, increasing those sort of skills and knowledge um, can be having a real positive impact on the person um, who's going through uh, recovery as well. And, you know, just general care too, isn't it? I know if I'm, I've had a good night's sleep, I'm better, can deal with things a lot better yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's all, I mean, as I say, it's, yeah, an incredibly, um, can be incredibly stressful and strainful, you know, an emotional sort of journey as well. So it's really hard, uh, you know, as you say, even just with not getting enough sleep, um, you know, to, to keep sort of emotions in check sometimes or be, out, be able to feel as effective as we can be when we're not looking after ourselves. So what can I say to a loved one that will help them find or encourage them to find self-compassion? Yeah, that's a really tricky one. I think we all can struggle at times to find yes. our own self-compassion. Why is it so hard? Why is self-compassion so hard at times? Well, I, I guess, you know, just, just thinking about that, you know, it's not something I guess we ever get taught really, is it? You know, we're never taught in some ways to, to be, you know, um, whether it be at school or even, you know, parents may not necessarily not 
you know, always have the skills or, or tools there as well um, to um, take that step back when we are sort of perhaps being harder on ourselves or being more critical, um, you know, to, to provide some of that self-compassion to ourselves. Um, and certainly someone experiencing an eating disorder, um, their self-worth really can get tied up around this sort of relationship with food or the rules they might put around, um, you know, how they engage with food as well as body weight and shape. Um, so some things that might help, you know, could be highlighting other areas that their loved one might be good at or they might be uh, enjoy as well, you know, either prior to the eating disorder or, or still at the same, you know, as they're going through recovery themselves um, so that they can have other aspects in life that they can sort of reflect on and feel that they're sort of achieving as well. Um, and if they're in recovery too, you know, acknowledging that what they're doing is really challenging and really hard and it's not an easy process um, and to not forget about some of those small wins. And I think that's, we can all do that at times where we can sort of get a bit blinded that, you know, something's gone wrong, but we've, you know, forgotten about some of the achievements we've, we've have um, been able to uh, accomplish, I guess, um, as well. Uh, I think modelling can be helpful as well, that behaviour too. So modelling for ourselves, again, as you say, Joe, is, is not an easy thing to do for ourselves. But if we can, you know, show that our loved one, that we can sort of um, practice our own self-compassion too, you know, that can have a, a, a trickle or domino effect where they can sort of see that in action and it can be helpful for them as well. That's wonderful. Um, another question here, what are some of the long-term effects people may not even realise after being a carer? So this person who's asked this question gave an example of post-trauma, years after recovery, how it can be debilitating and you know leading to unnecessary hypervigilance and things like PTSD. So what are those long-term effects that people might not realise? Well, just as in this example, you know, there could be their own mental health, you know, concerns that do come up. I mean, I think uh, at the time people can be so focused and, and, you know, we hear from carers that the focus is very much on their loved one. Um, and it's not until things sort of uh, ease through recovery or they sort of feel they can take a step back that, you know, those sort of impacts feel more real, I guess, or they're more noticed by uh, the carer. So it can be their own um, anxiety, um, you know, depression, I guess, or as you mentioned, that sort of hypervigilance, particularly around a loved one and their behaviours and, and, you know, watching for signs of relapse potentially. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I've heard from carers as well that the eating disorder can take so much focus that they, in, in importance in their life, and understandably so, that other things might need to shift or change. So, you know, whether that's with work or um, they lose connection with friends. And so I've had carers too, as they get to the end of, um, or towards the end of a, a recovery journey with their loved one, to sort of feel at a loss of their own identity, I guess, as well, um, and not sure, sure anymore, you know, who they are or what they enjoy doing in some ways. Um, I think that goes to, again, to the importance of sort of getting their own support during that time so they have someone to check in with and can talk about those things uh, and hopefully can, um, you know, encourage some of those self-care strategies so that they do continue some sort of uh, identity for themselves that's outside the eating disorder as well. It's almost just being aware that that's a possibility that there might be long-term effects yeah. too, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And and that's, you know, and can be part of it, you know, as, a, as I've said, you know, it's an incredible stressful and challenging journey um, and you know um, at the best of times you know even with you know um, children and people you know there's no rule book or guidebook on how to handle those sort of things so uh, it's even more incredibly stressful when you know there's illness or mental health illness as well. 
We have a question here. What should I do if I think my loved one is starting to relapse? And maybe you could also give us some of the signs that a relapse might be happening. Sure. So first, I would want to normalise that you know relapse is very is a very common part in recovery, uh, and we almost say it's part of the process. Really, um, you know, uh, recovery is not a, a linear sort of journey. It doesn't start from point X and then sort of you get treatment and then you're uh, cured, if you like, or you've recovered in a straight sort of line. Uh, it often takes, you know, steps forward and steps backwards. Um, and treatment will often include sort of relapse prevention strategies as well um, to ensure that people are sort of skilled to have awareness of those sort of um, times and what to do if that's sort of coming up. Some signs of relapse, you know, could be, you know, noticing those um, previous eating disorder behaviours uh, re-emerging, um, whether that be around food or exercise, uh, could also be around um, the thoughts or, um, again, noticing that preoccupation that someone might have around food, weight or shape. Um, there could be a drop in weight or um, a decrease that's noticed in food intake. Um, and it also could be things like disengaging and things, you know, social networks or other things they enjoyed um, or then neglecting their own self-care. And so in terms of what, you know, could be helpful, um, I guess, as a carer, if you're noticing that, um, you know, you, your loved one um, perhaps engaging in behaviours again or maybe having a lapse, relapse, um, you know, I would encourage people to sort of approach that. Uh, as a learning experience as well. I know it can be a bit of a scary thing and it can be a concerning thing, um, but I often would say to people, carers and those with lived experience, that those um, lapses or relapses can be opportunities to learn about what, you know, how to grow and develop, I guess, even more so. Uh, and it might be happening at a time where there's an incredible uh, level of stress and it makes sense that some of those old, old coping strategies or ways have come back into this come to surface um, so you know if there have been um, relapse prevention strategies come up in the past in their treatment so engaging with those um, or looking at what was helpful um, through recovery and those strategies and re-engaging with them as well and this question my child is a perfectionist she can't tolerate anything going wrong how can I talk to her about near enough is good enough yeah, for sure, and and this is. Do you see? We, do you see a lot of perfectionism as an issue? Yeah, yeah, certainly. We it's not uncommon to sort of see you know eating disorders and, and perfectionistic sort of traits sort of go hand in hand in in some cases, um, and it's interesting. You know, although striving to do our very best is often seen as a positive attribute, uh, it's almost um, that type of thing of you know too much of that is, is always too much of anything can be unhelpful at times, um, and often perfectionists you know self worth again can be tied to achieving those unrelenting standards they set for themselves. And they find that that gets in the way of many things they want to do and impacts other aspects in their life. Um, so some things that can be helpful or, you know, might be useful can be talking about, you know, those times when perfectionism may have gotten in the way of doing other things um, and, and, you know, how there might be some benefits in sort of uh, adjusting that scale or loosening some of those standards a little so there's not so much cost or impact for them in other aspects of their life. Um, Perfectionists also have a, often a very self-critical um, sort of inner voice, if you like, or, or you know, that's guiding some of that, um, you know, the behaviour and sort of that thinking. So, um, you know, reframing that inner critic can be helpful, helpful as well. Uh, often I would suggest to people to think about what they might say to a friend or someone they cared about that might have the same standard as them. 
because often we wouldn't have the same unrelenting standard that we have for ourselves and, and hold that up against someone else. So shifting mm. that self-talk could be helpful as mm, well. That, that inner critic can be a very strong personality. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and again, I think um, this is where um, it's, it can be sometimes um you know, more of what we do than what we say at times. So, you know, modeling that behavior ourselves, I think can be helpful. And again, it's not an easy thing, but if we can sort of show our loved ones that there's some flexibility that if, you know, around, if things don't go so as well as planned and, you know, we can have a bit of that, you know, near enough is good enough sort of measure as well. Um, that can also be helpful for other people to see and, and sort of model off as well. What about this question? I feel frustrated at times and then I feel guilty for feeling that way? Is this normal? A quick answer is yes. I <laughs> think it's very normal. You mm. know, I think for anyone that's caring, whether it be for eating disorder, I think a carer for anyone that has, you know, mental health or physical um, health issues or even uh, with elderly it's going to be really normal to experience a mix of emotions at different times. Um, and I think, you know, we like to perhaps think if we're a carer, we might be superhuman and we can sort of manage things at times, you know, that, that you know, nothing will sort of phase us. Um, but the fact of the matter is because we are all human um, and, you know, we going to experience a range of emotions and it's going to be um, you know challenging at times so it's really understandable that we you know experience different emotions at those different times and you know goes uh, go back to that sort of self-compassion question around you know it might be time you know those times you know practicing that self-compassion for ourselves or you know again why it's so important for carers to be able to have a space or have their own supports in place so they can talk to people around what might be going on uh, emotionally and, and those sort of emotions that come up for them as well. I think the opportunity to ask is this normal and is what I'm feeling normal um, it's a really good place to talk about that in support groups and counselling but a lot of people feel quite uncomfortable about joining a support group and about taking on counselling why would you recommend people join EDFA and take part in the work that they do and the, the support that they provide? Sure. Um, so, yeah, carers, the idea um, for carers to share about what's going on or talking about what's happening can be really uncomfortable uh, and confronting, um, as you say. Um, but, yeah, I think knowing that, you know, you're not alone in this journey and that there are others going through this similar things is incredibly helpful. Uh, I often hear from carers um, how isolating it is and the eating disorder can be for them um, and it has been for them or that friends and family just don't quite understand or they in their best intentions are trying to give advice and, and help but this comes across as not really understanding and, and um, you know, providing that um, sounding board that they're looking for. So, um, you know, being able to link in with others uh, in a support group or accessing their own support via counselling can be really helpful to, to feel not alone and, and less isolated in that um, space and in that journey. And it's not just, um, you know, support groups that EDFA sort of, uh, well, the EDFA offer. Um, you know, we do have education webinars available as well to paid members. So there's a 160 hours, I think, um, now of education webinars from some from some leading experts in the field of eating disorders, and they can be incredibly helpful and a good starting point, I guess, just to sort of upskill and um, educate, I guess, around what might be happening and how they might be able to help. 
So Chris, you are the Program Director at Fill the Gap. Tell us a little bit more about the program and what it offers. Sure. So the Fill the Gap program is a free um, telehealth um, nationwide service that offers one-on-one counselling to carers um, of those experiencing an eating disorder. Um, the counsellors on the program are professional counsellors, but they also have their own lived experience as carers as well, which I think can be incredibly helpful uh, and important to provide some of those insights. Um, the sessions are tailored, uh, I guess, to the individual individual needs of the um, carer coming to them and really focus on providing that support around um, their own um, self-care strategies, as well as upskilling and providing information and education that would be helpful to support their loved one. There's no ongoing commitment or, you know, that you have to attend a number of, you know, X number of sessions. Uh, So people can use that, you know, how they would like, you know, they could drop in, um, you know, every so often, you know, over a few months just to check in, or they could have more regular appointments, you know, fortnightly sort of to keep that uh, support, um, you know, in their network as well. Do people have to give their name and or, or their loved one's name and their details if they ring Fill the Gap, Chris? Uh, so being an online program, I guess we do need some details, you know, such as an email address to set up the appointment. And it's certainly helpful to have some back, background information on, you know, who the person's caring for. But carers can choose to share how much or a little of their story they, they want, I guess, in those sessions. Uh, like any other counselling services, um, any details and conversations discussed are kept confidential with counsellors. Um, but for the most part, the aim is to really provide the support for carers um, and, and um, so they can support their loved ones. So being able to talk a bit about what's going on, um, you know, is going to be helpful in order to do that. And just lastly, Chris, we like to ask our guests, what are their top three words of wisdom for parents or carers supporting their loved one with an eating disorder? And this was also a question from one of the members too. So what Mm. three things would you like carers to know with your years of experience as a psychologist under your belt? What would you advise? Yeah, well, going back to three words, I guess, that come to mind would be sort of, would be hope, um, patience and empathy. Um, so to go through those, you know, I, I think it's particularly hard, you know, um, when a loved one's not wanting to change and that, you know, they are feeling quite hopeless, you know, around the recovery process. Carers can often sort of feel uh, that lack of hope as well. Um, but recovery from an eating disorder is absolutely possible. Uh, and holding that hope for their loved one and for themselves is incredibly important. Um, and, and going back to the idea of acknowledging any progress that um, has been made, no matter how small, is really helpful too. Um, with patients, you know, recovery from an eating disorder takes time. Uh, and it's incredibly challenging to see a loved one um, take some steps forward and then go backwards. Um, and sometimes carers might need to act more urgently urgently when there's um, physical concerns or complications coming up. But for the most part, you know, each individual journey will take its time um, and and acknowledging that, taking things day by day um, can be helpful as well. Uh, And empathy, uh, you know, approaching a loved one with empathy, and it can be hard, certainly when there's a heightened stress and and frustrations there, but approaching with empathy empathy and validating um, that you can see that they're trying um, that that change is really difficult. You know, often when um, 
there's uh, anger or defensiveness expressed by a loved one, it can be rooted, I guess, in fear about making changes or not wanting to lose something like an eating disorder that might be helpful to them in some ways, such as coping with difficult situations or difficult emotions. So yeah, those are sort of three words, I guess, that um, over the years I sort of feel that would be helpful to sort of hold, I guess, you know, hope, patience and empathy um, that may be helpful for carers as well. I love that, Chris. That's great. Hope, patience and empathy. Thank you so much for your time today. It was really lovely to hear so much of your wise counsel as well. And you are part of the team delivering the Fill the Gap program, which we know is a vital service that will help so many. Thanks again for helping us with those member questions. No worries, Joe. It was great to be here. Now, if you want to access the Fill the Gap service, then book online on EDFA's website for these free one-on-one counselling sessions. Fill the Gap is delivered like a telehealth appointment, so you can access this support service with a simple phone call from anywhere in the country. And it's important to note that Fill the Gap is not a crisis service. So if you or someone you know is needing immediate support, please call emergency services on 000 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. Thanks for listening to Strong Enough, a podcast by Eating Disorders Families Australia, an organisation caring for carers around the country. Head to our website at edfa.org.au for links to more resources, including webinars, support groups and the Fill the Gap counselling services. All the links are in the show notes. And remember, you are strong enough. EDFA acknowledges Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the traditional custodians of the land this podcast was recorded on. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and future.